Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for our sponsors, Brand Boulevard, for uh, sponsoring our podcast and uh, allowing all of our guests to get a nice, well, pre-COVID times, they got a nice little gift. Uh, we will get those gifts out to you uh, when uh, hopefully everything comes safe back. Safe to do so. Stay safe to do so. My name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. And I'm Trevor Lindy. Josh Bond uh, could not be with us. He's a little bit under the weather today, so uh, we decided that he, he, didn't, he didn't have to pop on. Um, however, we do have a very prominent guest in Niagara, uh, Dr. Mustafa Herji. Hello, sir. How Hello, are you? Brandon. Thanks for having me on. It is an, uh, you have no idea how much I, I am, we are all humbled that you are on our podcast. Um, thank you very, very, very much. Um, so we are recording this on uh, Wednesday, February the 17th, 2021. Um, I want to start off and address the quick little elephant in the room. Um, we are disgusted and disgraced on what happened to you over the weekend. We like, I, I completely agree with your rebuttal in the sense that debate is open and welcome. And I really appreciated your tweet on that mm -hmm. tweet and official statement. That's something that we like to have it on here. And Grant will even, Grant LaFleche will even attest to that, that him and I will, you know, kind of, you know, debate a bit. Uh, but we have an utmost respect for each other. And, um, and I do for, for uh, Mr. LaFleche. And we have a, the utmost respect for you and for what you do for our community. And we do not support what happened over the weekend to you. So I wanted to address that right away. Okay, well, thank you very much. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the reaction we saw on social media, and you know, even coming into my inbox really shows, I think the overwhelming majority of the community really rejected what was, I think, just really a couple of people who got carried away and said some things they really shouldn't have. Well, good attitude. Good attitude, Dev. Thank you. Um, so I, I just then I want to give you the platform to to discuss. There's a lot of misconceptions that were um, put out there. And Grant, uh, in our previous recording, um, uh, told us to, to address it with you. Mm -hmm. um, it was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding um, because of all the flurry of social media. I'm not on Facebook. I've deleted my account. So, and I barely use Twitter. So I get my, my news sources from reputable newspapers is how I do it. Um, however, there was a misunderstanding that you made the decision, but that's not the case. The province ultimately makes the decision on where we go and in what color we go to. Can you walk us through that, please? And, and just so it, the, the record can be straight on how it works? Sure. So, you know, everything actually goes back to the province's reopening Ontario Act that they passed last summer. Under that act, there's regulations, and those regulations define what businesses, services can be open. And it actually goes down to the level of actually specifying which regions of the province are in which level. So it actually takes an amendment to those regulations to decide what color level we are in. And of course, only cabinet can actually change one of those regulations. So the way the process cabinet goes about making that decision is that they look to the chief medical officer of health to provide them advice on where that should go. The chief medical officer of health as part of his uh, process, you know, is looking at the data, seeing what they're seeing, 
but also consults with us locally to get a perspective on the ground, what does this data actually mean? Because data are numbers, they tell you something, but there's always a you know, deeper reality of what's actually happening on the ground. And so there's a conversation around that. Typically it's a 15 minute meeting that's set up, usually with you know, a few different medical officers of health in regions that actually have a similar color level or are looking at us you know, moving to a similar color level. And over those 15 minutes, they talk with all of us about what they're seeing in the data, hear our perspectives of what we think about that, and anything else locally that might be of interest that you know, should inform the decision. And then they take that away, it goes to cabinet, and I don't have a lot of insight in how cabinet makes decisions, but somehow they you know, come up with their final decision. So it was cabinet's decision at the end of the day. This time, you know, I had cautioned that I was concerned about us moving too quickly to reopen, and, uh, it, you know, the decision seems to align with that. But in past weeks, you know, I have, you know, given recommendations to the Chief Medical Officer of Health of what I think should happen, and it hasn't really played out. Last summer, I thought Niagara was ready to move into stage two of reopening, and we got held back a week by cabinet in stage, in stage one. This past December, when I saw the numbers starting to look bad and was very concerned about us, you know, seeing a big spike of infections and potentially deaths, I did ask that we, you know, really have some additional measures brought in quickly. And it was probably only about 10 days later that we actually moved into the red level. And so, you know, what I suggest doesn't necessarily translate into what cabinet is going to decide. They make their own decisions. So is there a team of people on your team, like mm -hmm. you are, I, I'm not ignorant to the fact, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of history on sure. my wife right now, um, for 12 years worked for FACTS, and in the middle of this pandemic got sequestered to another um, health agency out of the region. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll tell you that off, off the recording because just for confidentiality. Um, and she's a social worker, uh, has her master's and she's a COVID-19 contact tracer. Okay. So in my own home, I'm, I'm hearing it all the time. And plus my father recovered from COVID-19 okay. back in, back in November. Um, but you're not, you are not it. There's, there's gotta be people that you, you consult with. And, and how, how can you please tell our listeners and our viewers, how many people like it, it's not, it's not the Dr. Hergy show. You're, you don't come across as that individual. I'm sure you consult people. And my wife has told me, no, this isn't made in a vacuum. Could you please, I want, again, let's get the record straight. Of course. On your yeah. Team? yeah. So, you know, when I'm making this decision, you know, first off, I'm talking to the contact tracing team to get a sense of how, you know, what they're seeing, you know, on the ground with their own, you know, talking to actual clients and contacts of COVID-19 and understand how their workload is impacting them. I'm talking to our outbreak team to understand what are they seeing in their outbreaks? How are they managing in terms of dealing with the outbreaks? I talked to the senior services division over in Niagara region where they run long-term care homes to actually get their perspective as well as actually operators of long-term care homes of what's happening. You know, I'm talking with a lot of my other senior staff who are focused on COVID-19 to get their perspectives. I'm looking at some of the data that comes out in terms of economic data to understand what's happening there. I'm looking at the modeling data that's put out by the Ontario Science Table to get a sense of what's happening in the broader provincial context and where we're going. And I'm actually getting some sense from some of our neighboring regions of what's happening in their regions because we know what happens in one part of the province will spill over here as well. And so really, those are all of the, some of the many inputs. And I've probably forgotten a few that I'm taking into coming up with a recommendation. And, you know, once I have a sense of where I'm going, I'm often, you know, sharing it back to kind of ground truth it. Another piece actually I should mention as well is I'm speaking with Niagara Health and some of their physicians there to get a sense of 
what is it like for them? How stretched are they in terms of dealing with COVID patients? And so there's a lot of different inputs coming in, a lot of different people giving perspectives before that final decision is gets made. And of course, that final decision is our interpretation of what the data is and you know how quickly we think we should be closing or opening. It's not actually a decision of where we end up. How stretched is Niagara Health right now? Niagara Health is stretched. They're certainly improving, but they're still, you know, uh, well over a dozen, I believe, COVID-19 patients. Um, they've recently got through some outbreaks, so they did have several staff who are off because their contacts of infection and had to isolate. And one of the things that's happened with COVID-19 is to have the capacity to care for COVID-19 is you actually have staff who maybe normally would be treating other things or doing surgeries actually having those surgeries cancel and moving over. And so until we get to, you know, probably a little bit lower, it's not going to completely go back to normal. Niagara Health has, of course, also been managing two of our long-term care homes, Oakwood Park and Millennium Trail. And fortunately, both of those outbreaks have recently ended. So that's going to help their capacity as well. So I think they're really on the cusp of actually things getting much better now, but they've been pretty stretched the last little while. Okay. Uh, my question now comes at the, and this might, and this will transition potentially into my, my follow-up, is the mental health mm -hmm. um, impact that you, I know as a physician, are very aware of and where my, my wife comes at it from a mental health perspective because she also has a counseling business mm -hmm. as well. Um, did, did, does that factor into your decision-making? I'm, I'm, I know it's a yes, but I'm just kind of lobbing it up there for you. And um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? And Yeah, so it, it absolutely factors into decision-making. We're always thinking about what are the costs to others if we, say, have stronger restrictions on society and we cause more social isolation, et cetera. Um, you know, the flip side of that is, of course, if that you're able to control COVID-19, you don't overwhelm the healthcare sector, and you have more healthcare providers, they would be able to actually continue to deliver mental health. So it's actually a bit of a complex balance of what you're trying to do here when it comes to mental health. What we've done in public health is we've really put a priority on making sure we continue to have the capacity to deal with mental health. So we've not been redeploying staff from our mental health programs or from our mental health promotion work, making sure we continue to have that. We actually are doing a CME on suicide prevention next week with our primary care community. So that's really been a priority for us. As well with, you know, reopening, we really pushed hard actually as a medical officer of health community across the province. And it should be schools would be the first thing that we reopened because we recognize how critical that is actually for children's development and their mental health. And so that was, you know, I think a step of, you know, let's bring them back, you know, with some risk, this is going to lead to more spread of infection, but it's so important that we do this, that we don't want to wait too long before we do that. Whereas other things, maybe we can wait a little long because the negative impact isn't going to be quite as great as keeping schools closed. So, you know, definitely thinking about that. Definitely it's informed some of these decisions around school reopening, but obviously it's not perfect. And, you know, until we are able to get back to normal, we're not going to be able to restore everybody to where they were before. Unfortunately, that's just not reality that we can live in right now. Now, you uh, came into this job um, as the acting medical officer, and is that title still acting? Am I correct? Uh, that is the case still, yes. Okay, so, um, and when did that, when did you start your title? Uh, when did you start in this position? Uh, uh, in your been, current, yeah. Yeah, I, I became the acting medical officer of health after our previous medical officer of health uh, retired in mid-January of 2018. So, do the math, it's been about 37 months now. Okay. 
um, then I, I'm assuming what, I know there's gonna be a laundry list of changes that that's gonna, because you did not set up these policies, these procedures, this framework, you inherited them. Um, and no one can ever plan a global pandemic. Um, however, epidemiologists have been warning and sounding the alarms, your profession specifically. Um, and to, 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 for people to excuse this as a once in a century, I don't think that's going to happen again because we're traveling a lot more. Mm -hmm. So what off the top of your head, and, and I'm not going to hold you to, to these, like what are some of the key changes that Niagara Health specifically has to make on top of the province, which are probably obvious ones, and the federal government, that you are going to implement and recommend? So this doesn't happen again. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think you can say it's a once in a century pandemic and maybe on average, even that might work out, but averages have a way where sometimes you have a cluster and then a big space. So who knows if, you know, you know, we get another one in a couple of years and then we go 200 years without it, even if it was once in a century. So, you know, we obviously have to always be prepared. Um, you know, we've, we had a pandemic plan in place here in Niagara Region Public Health really all along. Um, we'd actually just updated it about a year before the pandemic hit. One thing we, you know, really realized though is our pandemic plan was really focused and really thinking around an influenza pandemic. And it was really right. based on trying to respond to that. So, you know, worked great for something like H1N1, might even have worked with something like the Spanish flu. When you got COVID-19, which behaves differently, all of a sudden a whole bunch of things stop working. You know, people with COVID-19 are much more likely to have no symptoms, but still be transmitting infection. COVID-19 actually transmits much more easily than influenza does. COVID-19, you know, people become infectious and spreading infection a couple of days before they do develop symptoms as they are one of those who has, is going to develop symptoms. And so those are all elements that we really hadn't planned around. So I think those are elements that did throw us off a bit. So I think the first thing that we would do with any new pandemic plan is maybe think a bit more outside of the box and not assume the next pandemic is necessarily going to be an influenza one because now we've lived through another kind of pandemic. And trying to think, you know, just not influenza-like or a coronavirus what are the other kind of viruses or pathogens that have pandemic potential? And what do we need to do to actually properly prepare for those? So I think that would be the first thing that we do. I think a second area I'd want to think about is really, we've seen our health sector capacity really get pushed to the breaking point in several cases. Biggest example, I think, would be our long-term care home sector, where you know, outbreaks hit, people, you know, staff there are exposed to infection, they can't work all of a sudden you struggle to actually have the staff in place to first of all provide the care that the residents need and on top of that then do the additional work of actually preventing the spread of infections during an outbreak. And our long-term care home sector really just wasn't able to handle that because there just wasn't enough health capacity and staff around to really pull in those extra people when outbreaks started to hit. So I think we would really want to start to look at what can we do to build up our you know, reserve capacity in the health sector a little bit more so we're not caught flat-footed like that. And what are, you know, uh, particularly with the long-term care home sector, what are things that we really need to change with this to set it up better for the future? I'm thinking about our public health capacity. We were very stretched in terms of doing contact tracing and there's limits to how much we're able to do. So I would hope that there's an opportunity to reinvest in public health to actually build our capacity. And I think really build some of our technology tools. 
we started off this pandemic using a case contact management database that the province rolled out in at the end of 2004. So it was about 16 years old already. Uh, obviously, you know, pretty limited given how quickly technology has advanced. So I think there's a lot of investment we need to do on the data side in terms of our technology to, I think, really bring us up to a level where we're actually perhaps more nimble and actually able to leverage, you know, some of the other advances. And then I think about some of the more recent conversations we've had around uh, uh, vaccination and, you know, having domestic vaccination capacity. We do have a little bit, you know, I've been to a Sanofi Pasteur plant in North Toronto where they do manufacture some vaccines there, but we obviously didn't have the plans for the companies that are developing COVID-19 vaccines. So can we locate more vaccine capacity here? I think we've taken steps to having more companies doing PPE, but can we have a long-term supply of PPE developed in Canada? So if we ever did have a pandemic, we're able to jump on that. And I think the last thing is really, I think a bit of a mindset and more a learning for all of us is that in January, particularly getting into February, we were seeing infectious disease modelers showing us the warning signs of what this pandemic was going to be like. And I don't know if we all took it as seriously as we needed to and recognized how imminent that threat was. And so I think hopefully a learning we take is to actually trust some of that modeling work a bit better and actually be more quick to respond when we do see it. So there's a few ideas, you know, it's probably not comprehensive of everything we need to do after this pandemic, but some of the big ones that I can think of. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I got, I got a tough question now. Okay. When are the rest of the vaccines coming? When will I be getting vaccinated? That's what I want to know. Yeah. So uh, this has, of course, been the big frustration because we're demanding it from the provincial government. The provincial government's demanding it from the federal government. The federal government's demanding it from the manufacturers. We're all ultimately at the mercy of the manufacturers and how quickly they can produce it. And with them probably having you know, dozens, if not over 100 contracts with countries around the world, how much of whatever they produce actually does get allocated to us. We've gone through a very dry spell with vaccines over the last four weeks. All the signals we have though, is it's starting to ramp up quite quickly. And I think there's some sense as a quarterly contracts of what the manufacturers would deliver to Canada. And 
because they were low the last few weeks, it's going to be higher the, over the next few weeks to actually make it up so that by the end of March, they're reaching their target. So I think there'll be a lot more vaccine supply. That being said, it is still going to be targeted to people who are at greatest risk of severe illness and death. So it may not necessarily go to someone like you yet. I don't know your medical history to know if you're high risk. You certainly don't look like you're in the elderly category, which is actually your highest risk group. Yeah. Um, but, you know. In the mornings, he feels like that, but I don't know about that, you know, usually. What I'm asking is. I'm 44 years old. I'm, I'm relatively healthy and all that. And I'm not expecting to get them anytime soon, but would I be thinking more the end of this year, the beginning of next year? Uh, I think you're definitely looking this year. We okay. have, I think, enough vaccine coming into the country by the end of the year that you'd get vaccinated. I think it's really a question of, is it fall? Is it late summer? Is it even maybe even early to midsummer? Okay. And that's going to be the big question. Right now, the big priority is, Elderly groups, particularly in places like retirement homes, group homes, senior focused apartments where outbreaks can happen, healthcare workers, and then the over 80 group will start with, that's all going to probably be happening in the next six to eight weeks, and then starting to work backwards in terms of age categories. So then it'd be 80s and then plus 70, plus 60, plus 50, exactly. kind of like that? Yeah. Okay. That's what and I was curious. And if the faster vaccine comes and the faster maybe new vaccines get approved, those timelines move up earlier because we have more vaccine to work with. And just out of curiosity, vaccine produced in, in Canada too, right? I've sorry, I didn't catch the start of that question. Is there talks of Canada producing their own vaccine too? Like near the yeah. end of the year? Yeah, the federal government has struck a contract with Novavax, which I think is a US-based company. Maybe I, I hmm. could be wrong about that, but to actually have a plant producing vaccine and believe in the Montreal area. That probably won't actually happen until the near the end of the year. And Novavax actually hasn't even finished their clinical trials and gotten health hand approval to produce their vaccine. So that's another step that would need to happen. Okay. But if that all happens, they would probably start producing at the end of this year, which is probably past the point everybody has been given the opportunity to get vaccine. But it would mean that if you know we find out we need to give booster doses or maybe some of these variants that we're seeing need a different vaccine, we would potentially have the ability to produce those locally. Okay. Now, just out of curiosity, I'm wondering, with us being in gray, does that help get us more vaccines? Like, is that, is that something that happens in the background that we just don't know about? It, it quite possibly it does. Okay. Back in December, the region's in gray or in red. We were in orange at the time, which is why we didn't get vaccine, whereas, you know, Hamilton, which was in red, and all much of the GTA, which is in red or gray, got the vaccine. And, you know, of course, we didn't get it then until the mid-January uh, when the province realized that they were starting to see deaths across the province, and they really need to get vaccine out to all parts of the province. So I think the province will be less about only sending it to certain regions, but there might be some element where they're sending more to harder-hit regions. And us being gray will potentially set us up to get a bit more vaccine. Very good. Interesting. Now you, I, I, if I'm not mistaken for Niagara specifically, you've, you've earmarked the four pad on St. Paul street West. Am I not mistaken for are that that's going to be like ground zero for the administration of the vaccines so when the, that happens? Yeah. So the four pad in St. Catharines, that's actually the hospital system, Niagara health, who is uh, put their clinic there. They're really taking the lead on delivering vaccines to healthcare workers. And I think they actually they've uh, been able to restart doing that work as of today, given the higher supply of vaccines. 
So I think actually that clinic may actually be back up and running as of today to deliver vaccines to healthcare workers. The public health clinic will potentially be there, potentially be another location. We haven't given a final announcement yet of where it's going to be because we don't want to you know, pre-announce a clinic and then have everybody calling to set up a booking when we don't actually know what date we'd actually be able to open. But we'll have clinics really in all parts of Niagara to make sure that it's somewhere nearby for everybody and everybody has access. And we hope to, as supply increases, really get primary care pharmacies also involved with vaccination. So there'll be lots of lots of different options to get the vaccine. Um, we, we've been getting a lot in, in the newspapers. Um, unfortunately, in some cases, it's turned partisan, which, I, which is sad to see in a pandemic that politics are playing. Um, but I, in your professional opinion, you can you cannot answer. I, it's not a political question. It's just more of a, I need to know, because you, you touched on long-term care homes. Yeah. Um, was the RQIs, which is the quality inspections that used to happen on behalf of previous, did that have any, like, was, was, was that decreased? Because I, we heard that it was an auditor general recommendation to decrease the amount of RQIs, but to more, do more focus on more complaint-based in, in the long-term care homes. That was on the CDC anyways. Um, or is it more of a bigger, pro, not a, I wouldn't want to say problem, but a bigger fix that needs to happen in the long-term care facilities and in the healthcare facilities from, a, from an investment perspective? Like where do you see those gaps? Because we found that, especially in Niagara, mm-hmm. our long-term care homes got hammered with, with this, this, this disease. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to hear your comment on that. Yeah, so... Uh- you know, I don't have too much information on the inspections that you're talking about. I imagine these are the ones done by the Ministry of Long-Term Care. Yes, Which are correct. very heavily focused on actually the proper care being provided to residents. Whereas we in public health actually do the inspections focused on infection control. And so we've actually never backed off on doing those inspections. And actually since last year, in the spring, we actually started to ramp them up with the threat of COVID-19 because we wanted to make sure our long-term care homes were as prepared as possible when the virus did hit. I think inspections aren't actually the solution here though. Um, I think there's some broader systemic issues that are happening and the inspections really just pick them up and point to what needs to be fixed, but there's not necessarily the capability to actually fix everything. Big one here is, I think is actually just the level of resourcing in long-term care homes. They really operate on kind of a shoestring budget most of the time. they're not really, you know, they don't have, you know, an expert in infection control on site. That's really side of the desk work of the director of care or the manager of the facility. They have a lot of staff who are actually not really very highly paid healthcare staff. They're, you know, PSWs who do extraordinarily good work and, you know, are really a credit to our system in terms of the care they provide to residents. But they're also not, you know, regulated staff who've got, you know, a high level of training. And, you know, despite the great work they do, they don't also have that same level of training in terms of infection control. And so I think you do need to have more capacity and expertise around infection control in those homes. I think, you know, a lot of, you know, PSWs we've learned, you know, actually, you know, don't make a lot of money. And many of them are actually rooming together and living together. And that would mean that one of them gets infected with COVID-19 and they're doing all the right things in the workplace so infection isn't spreading. But then they go home where they're living with some coworkers and the infection spreads amongst them in the home when everybody's guard is down. And then, of course, you start to have multiple staff infected and you start to get outbreaks. So you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that need to be done in terms of the resources, in terms of 
building infection prevention control capacity to really start to prevent some of these outbreaks. And that's at a regional level, the infection inspections are at a regional level, not at the provincial level with the Ministry of Long-Term Care and Health, which would be the RQIs, correct? Correct. I just want to make sure our listeners understand the difference. Public health, where we do those inspections. So then then to piggyback on on that, um, what funding do you need? Did, did, Did funding get cut? Uh, uh, to do those infectious inspections or did funding just stay the same and then we need more money in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Yeah, so um, public health unfortunately has been seeing our budget starve for several years. So I think five of the last six years, our budget stayed flat despite inflation increasing costs, despite you know new expectations by the province coming upon us. We've been able to manage to keep the same number of inspections. So, you know, you know, I think there needs to be proper funding of public health for ongoing inflation and population growth, but that wasn't really a factor here. The inspections were still happening. Where the additional resources need to be is actually in the long-term care homes themselves for their operations. So they're operating with maybe a dedicated person who can do infection prevention control, you know, can make sure everybody's trained infection control, can be doing audits to figure out that things are going well day to day as opposed to when public health comes in once a month or once every couple of months, finding out what's wrong, giving the feedback and not actually having anybody who has the capacity to follow up and make sure all those things are fixed. Wow. Um, Trevor, uh, did you have, I know you had a couple of questions, but, uh, oh, did Bondo, Josh Bond, sorry, no, he's our lawyer. No, no, he, he had nothing. He never wrote back saying, he just said, I don't have any questions. Okay. So. But I know you're on a tight time schedule. So I do not want to take your time away from us. We are so, so appreciative of you. Yeah, very grateful for having thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We would love to have you on again. Um, the sure, unfortunate sure. thing is we had a, uh, I, I chirp Grant LaFleche all the time. Why? I know him and I can't. Uh, you know, like it, it's just our, our, our relationship, but we do have a, an immense respect for him. Um, but we would love to have you on again. Uh, the unfortunate thing is people do listen to our podcast video or audio more than they probably would read a newspaper or whatever. So please, your, your um, executive assistant, mm-hmm. um, I will not say her name just for confidentiality because there's no need. Um, if ever you want to come on here and you, you want to talk about something, it is an, a standing open invite. Great. And you. you let us know. We would love, love, love to have you on again. And we really, really appreciate, uh, and my wife being, again, the social worker uh, uh, side of things, really appreciates everything that you've done. Um, and, and, Thanks for and keeping that. our family safe, too. I think you're making good decisions. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that. And I'd be happy to come back on the podcast sometime. Yes, and especially for, like, any time that you have to do to fully explain your Section 22 orders or anything of that nature, sure. because, it, like, people's get sound bites and they, this I think gives them a full, this is an unedited platform that you can just speak. Okay. Which is good. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, I believe, yeah, you're according to your schedule. Do you will, we can wrap it up and then you can be on your way or do you have a little bit more time? I, I do need to wrap up. I could maybe do yes. one more question. If you had one more you wanted to throw. I got, at me. I got the question. I got the yes, question. Go ahead. <laughs> Biggest worry, I think, for most people now is these new variants that are coming yes. in. Oh, great job. Yes. Is there anything you suggest that we do? How do we tackle it different? What do you think Niagara is going to do? 
any insight would be great because that's what worries me now. Yeah, no, the variants are absolutely a huge concern. So, you know, um, what we're seeing with the variant, especially the B117 one, which was the one that originated in the UK, which is the one that's most prevalent now in Ontario, it's about 50% more transmissible than the usual variant of COVID-19 that we have here. So that means we need to do 50% extra to be able to stop it. Uh, what that really boils down to is that the lockdown that we have, you know, we just came in, coming out of, you know, the provincial-wide shutdown, that was suppressing the normal COVID quite effectively, which is why our numbers have come down, but it wasn't quite keeping the variants down, and they are slowly climbing up. And as we reopen, they are going to start to climb up at an increasing pace. And when I look at other countries like the UK, like Ireland, like the Netherlands, where that VOC is already quite established, they really went right back into a third wave, which was very sharp incline and was much more severe than their second wave. And I'm very worried that that could play out here. We have the advantage, you know, of first, we actually know about the VOCs, unlike some of those countries. So we know what we're dealing with. So we can hopefully try and do something about it. The other part is that we have vaccines now coming into the country. And as we get people vaccinated, that's going to help protect us from the VOCs. So we don't actually have to do as much, you know, restrictions in society and disruption of our lives to control it. So, but obviously vaccines are quite here yet. They're still coming in relatively slowly. So I think the next, you know, couple of months are going to be really, really critical about what we do to control COVID-19. I really think we need to go cautious and slow with our reopening to buy ourselves as much time as possible. That's going to let cases come down as low as possible and give free up all our healthcare providers, whether it's us in public health, in the hospitals, in long-term care. They're not going to be dealing with COVID-19, so they're going to be able to get those vaccines out to people. And if we do that, that sets us up that, you know, we've bought that time, we've made that, you know, short-term investment to get those vaccines out and keep cases down, that we have enough runway that before the VOCs really climb up, we'll have had vaccines in the arms. And these vaccines are just as effective against the new variant too? I don't know if we can say they're just as effective. They seem to be very effective, at least the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that we are using here. I don't think there's enough research to say they're equally effective, but they do seem to be quite effective in the countries where they are using it. The one vaccine that's found to not be effective is the one by AstraZeneca, which was being used in South Africa and doesn't seem to deal well with the variant that originated in South Africa. Unfortunately, we're not seeing very much of that variant here, and the AstraZeneca vaccine hasn't yet got health Canada approval, so it's not one of the ones we're using. Okay, so stay away from that one. <laughs> it's Thank you choice. so much. We really, really appreciate it. Please keep our uh, podcast on your mind. We will send the link to your uh, executive assistant uh, for you to listen to, and this, it's being released next week, so you'll know exactly what we're putting out there. Um, and again, like we said, except for odd sounds in the background, this is an unedited um, uh, interview. Um, thank, thank you, you very so, much. so much. Yeah, thank you very and much. Thank you Dr. very Richie. much for everyone that's listening. Uh, please, please, uh, with the, don't share this. Please share this interview and not sound bites and, and uh, clickbait headlines. Uh, this is the actual coming right from uh, the person in charge. Thank you so much again, Dr. Herji. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all our listeners. Please share and care. And we'd love to have you on again. Thank you so much, yeah. sir. Great. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Joel McLeod, co-host of the 905er podcast. 
The 905 is one of the most diverse and densely populated regions of Canada. Four and a half million of us live, work, and play in the area surrounding Toronto. That's more people in the 905 than actually live in Toronto. Each election, the 905 decides who forms our government at both the provincial and federal levels. So why isn't more attention being focused on us here in the 905? We're looking to change that. My co-host Roland Tanner and I tell the stories that define what we are calling the most important region in Canada. Each week, we bring to your attention news, culture, and issues that make up what it means to be a 905er. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Or you can visit us at 905er.ca to subscribe. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. 